And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we from heaven, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that they told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Each of us uh, this morning, as we sit here and as we are on the video, am I on channel? Yep, okay. Um, good? Okay. Um, we are on two different trajectories. One of, one of two different trajectories. There's only two. There's not three, there's not four. There are no other paths, no other options. You may be on the path of eternal life where you have believed on Jesus, you've trusted in his authority to forgive you and to save you and to free you, and, and, and surely you raise a hallelujah. Because you know your life has been changed. You know that he is going to keep you in good days and bad, keep you until the day that you see him face to face. And your path, the path that you're on this morning, though you might have moments of doubt and, and your confusion and everything, your path is one of hope and sorrow mingled together. As Paul would say, you know, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You feel that. So there is a pain and there's suffering and there's doubting and wrestling and all that, but inside you, you, you come to worship this morning and you just raise a hallelujah because you know you've been set free. The trajectory 
of true life is guaranteed to you as the authority of the King of Kings sits on the throne of your heart this morning. And this path grows more and more solid as each day goes by until the day you walk on that street when you will see him face to face. That's one trajectory. The other one, the only other option, you may be this very morning on the path of rejection that leads to destruction. It's what I've entitled this morning the trajectory of rejection. And this, this path is one that is crumbling as you progress on it. It feels solid, but it's crumbling in front of you as you go. It's, there's, there's potholes, and there's, there's uh, fissures that are going across the road, and it's dangerous. And the only thing for certain on that road is that in the end, it will lead you to eternal destruction. It, it, there's only one direction. There, there are not multiple ways to the same end. There are two paths. I'm hoping you'll see this morning from our time in this text this morning is that Jesus stands in the middle of your crumbling path of rejection and compels you to trust him. Jesus has entered Jerusalem uh, as king, but what he has done most recently in the cleansing of the temple that Pastor Kale spoke on last week has so angered the Jewish leadership that they have come after him. They've, they've come after him in wave after wave, and they continue to come after him wave after wave, questioning him, questioning him, questioning him. Matter of fact, it's quite, the questions don't cease until the end of this book. The very end of chapter 19, as we read in verse 19 of chapter 20, Jesus has angered them so much that they're ready to be rid of him. And certainly in just under a week's time in Luke, um, they will lay their hands on him and they will kill him. But until that time, they're coming on him numerous occasions, questioning him, questioning him, questioning him in a clear effort to discredit him, to, to call him a fraud, false teacher, all of that, and to trap him in some manner. So in verse 46 of chapter 19, we read that after Jesus clears the temple, he continues to teach in the temple every day. And verse 48 tells us that people continue to hang on his word, uh, every single word he spoke. Now that's been the way it's been for the most part in Jesus's ministry. You may remember from way back in Luke 4 how people were just simply amazed at his teaching. They'd never heard such authoritative teaching before. Well, now he sat in the temple and was significant and intimate. He was sitting there teaching this crowd. In, in, in intimate authority, Jesus taught the people. Can, can you imagine for a moment? Just let, let your imagination go for a moment. And imagine you're sitting in the temple and you're listening to King Jesus, the Son of God, speak and teach. Would it not be just amazing so while some are listening to Jesus and amazed at his teaching responding to him hanging on every word the religious elite were responding rather differently same place, same teaching, same person, entirely different 
response. They were seeking to destroy him. How, how, can, it be, how can it be that people could respond in such diametrically opposite manners to the same teaching? The same love, the same gracious speech, the same promises, the same authority, same teaching. Now what was the message that Jesus was speaking particularly? Verse 1 of chapter 20 tells us it's the message of the gospel. This is what Jesus has been teaching from the get-go. Good news. Uh, What was the good news? It was this. Remember what he said back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. He says this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus would speak on other occasions, like chapter 5, verse 20, chapter 7, verses 47 through 48, and, and what he will say in chapter 24, through four, uh, verse, verse 47, the good news has a focus, not just on the declaration of liberty, which is true, but forgiveness of sins. The liberty comes because you've been forgiven, because you've been set free, because you've been justified, because God has done this work. It all centers this whole gospel, this whole good news of liberty and freedom and forgiveness of sin, all centers on the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus was the Messiah, the one whom Isaiah, the prophet of God, had spoken of centuries earlier. And some heard his teaching and his declaration of who he was responded with wonder and responded with believing trust, faith, repentance, while others, hearing the same thing, rejected not simply what was being proclaimed, but rejecting the one who was proclaiming the message. And, and the same is true today. The same is true in this room. Some hear the good news of Jesus, the given eyes to see, and they respond with wonder and trust. While others hear the same good news and reject him. They reject the news and they reject Jesus entirely. And this trajectory of rejection in someone's life, this path of rejection, is observable. It's not simply a kind of passivity of non-belief. Rather, the Apostle Paul calls mankind's rejection hostility towards God. It it may seem passive to you, as if one simply just doesn't believe something, but rejecting the King of Kings, King Jesus, is anything but passive. It's aggressive. It's, it's, It's very aggressive. It's hostility towards God. It's choosing to reject one thing and embracing something else, accepting something different it's the accepting of something different even in indifference points to the reality rejecting king jesus i've heard family members and friends say well i'm not hostile towards god i just don't believe him or i'm not hostile towards god i don't believe there even is a god But in both situations and in all situations of rejection of the king, is it not hostility towards him that sits at the root? A rejection of his authority. Personal offense at what Jesus states 
or an utter disregard for what he said and an ever-increasing suspicion of him that begins in your heart and then spills out of your lips and your way you live. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. This is what happened to Cain. This is what happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament along with the nations around them. This is what is happening to the chief priests. This is what's happening to the scribes. This is what's happening to the principal men in the area in our text this morning. And this is what happens today as well. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what's happening perhaps even in you this morning. Now listen, friends, please, listen. I am not talking this morning to the person who is struggling to believe the promises of God or, or wrestling with the difficulties of the situation you find yourself in. A humble posture, hear this please, a humble posture under the hand of God amid the uncertainties and struggle of faith is not a posture of unbelief and rejection, but a posture of trust and dependence upon God. You might be questioning things, but at the core of your being, your posture is one of trust and faith. I'm not... I'm not primarily talking to you this morning about that. I would say that there is a danger that approaches as we begin to doubt the Word of God and His goodness that is only a trajectory that leads away from God and is worthy of repenting and turning and believing in Jesus. But I'm going to say some things this morning that are very stark, very clearly to the one who is rejecting Jesus. And I just want you to hear, I'm not speaking about you, primarily who is just questioning God's goodness amid your sorrow. But you believe him, you trust him, you just don't understand. That's a posture of faith and belief, and that's a wonderful gift. What I want us to consider this morning is that there is a foundation and trajectory of unbelief. It's a real thing. And it's anything but passive. It's deceptively aggressive. And it's hostile at its core. What once again may have been a doubt or a struggle becomes something altogether different. And it's devious. And it's destructive. And it's a path that is a crumbling path. And as it crumbles before you, Jesus is standing in the middle of the path saying, come on, trust me. What we see in our text are a few of the ways, two specifically, of the ways this trajectory of rejection is observable in the hearts of people just like you and I. First observation. Questioning Jesus' authority reveals a trajectory of rejection. Questioning Jesus' authority reveals a trajectory of rejection. While Jesus continues to teach in the temple, preaching the gospel, here comes a delegation of important men, in verse 1, um, not to listen to Jesus, but to question him. They already had in their minds what, what they were going to do. They weren't there to learn. There was no humble posture. 
For weeks now, even a few years in the ministry of Jesus, we've seen religious leaders over and over again primarily showing up as part of the crowd and, and kind of observing, questioning, uh, getting angry, all of that, even gathering to figure out what to do with him, like in Luke chapter 6, verse 11. But as we've seen in verse 47, they aren't going to sit back any longer. They're, they're done observing. They've come to a conclusion. They want to end him. So I imagine that after Jesus cleanses the temple, you might imagine the commotion that made and the embarrassment for them. And now he's been teaching in the temple that they're putting their heads together and they finally make a plan. And with ill intent, they come on one day and they begin to question his authority to do these things. These things. What things? What things? Well, again, certainly what they had just witnessed in Jesus driving out those who were doing business in the temple and effectively um, um, blocking the nations from coming to worship God, as Pastor Cale had mentioned last week. One, one can imagine that angry embarrassment of the religious elite amid the busiest time of the year at the temple. We're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, and Jesus made a mockery of them. They didn't like it. Who does Jesus think he is? By what authority do you do this, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Not just the actions on that day, though. The ongoing teaching of Jesus in the temple. Who do you think you are to be doing this? We're the leaders. We're the teachers of Israel. Who are you? They, they, they had already made up their mind who he was or who he wasn't. See, the country folks who heard Jesus' teaching in the local synagogues and towns on the hills and the valleys may have been uncertain. It's country folk, right? Simple. But, but we're the big boys. We're the temple leaders. We know we're, we're it, not him. His teaching, the gospel, the good news that centers on him being the Messiah who offers forgiveness of sins, to them, unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. Who does he think he is? By what authority do you do these outlandish things? From the very first days of Jesus' ministry, crowds were amazed by his authority. But, but now in the temple leaders' eyes, they had, they had say of who did what, who said what, in the temple that they were in charge of. And, and, and frankly, it seems okay on the one hand, because they think about like if someone were to just kind of crash in here and begin to teach you I would I'd be asking similar questions we actually would probably usher them out of the building there's a protection but, but good shepherds do that but but these guys aren't good shepherds these guys aren't protecting the nation they're protecting themselves they're questioning his authority they're looking to trap Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God, authority to forgive sins, only God does that, and so much more, and they rejected that authority. It, it could be that they're looking to reveal him as a fraudulent teacher, uh, some sort of revolutionary, dangerous to the Romans. Whatever the situation was, they were looking to, to somehow trap him into, into showing himself to be the blasphemer they knew him to be either by way of calling himself God, or if he says, I'm not God, but I'm and usurping God's authority, then either way, he's a blasphemer and is worthy of death. And they want to kill him. 
And perhaps they believe that they had Jesus over a barrel. He got them. And perhaps this morning you think you have Jesus over a barrel. You got questions. You're like, there's no way. You know, there's a way to ask a question from a place of humble curiosity, but this is not one of those times. They, they were not genuinely wondering. In utter hostile rejection, they questioned his authority. They hoped he would hang himself on his words. They, they weren't looking for more information to somehow try to understand or grapple with truth. They had already declared what they knew truth to be, and Jesus was not it. They were rejecting him. Have you ever talked with someone? They want to talk with you about work something out with you, but they come and they already have their mind made up. It, it's, it feels useless to talk with that person. It's not useless to talk to that person for us, but with these guys, it's like, we feel that sense of like, they already know. And Jesus knows their hearts. These leaders have rejected Jesus. He has no authority in their mind to forgive sins. No authority to judge the temple like he just did. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows their hearts. The reality is the question these temple leaders are asking is a tough one. Either way, Jesus answers. There is death waiting on the other side. And we know what Jesus' answer would be, but Jesus has nothing to prove. Jesus has no reason to answer to anybody about who he is. He sees right through them, and rather than answer their questions, because they weren't genuinely asking the question, Jesus turns the table on them and asks them a doozy of a question himself, and he says this in verse 3. I'll ask you a question, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now why this question? Seems kind of like left field question. Well, they were all aware of John everybody there, both the leaders and the people who were listening to this exchange. And the people believed John to be a prophet sent by God. He, he had taught a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to get right with God rather than having to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices in the temple. And of course, the religious leaders believed that teaching and practice to be diametrically opposed to everything that they knew, everything that they did, everything, the whole, the whole reason they existed. And it also diminished their sense of authority and purpose. And so, do you see the dilemma that the leaders are in here? Take a look at the text in verses 5 through 7. You'll see the dilemma more clearly. So they heard the question, and kind of like a, a team on Jeopardy or something, they get, back, they get together and they huddle and they say, okay, guys, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? But, but if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us. For, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. And so, because they're so wise, they say, we don't know. We don't know. If we answer this question, retain our position of respect, and we won't be able to retain our position of respect and authority. They, they weren't worried about the right answer. You see, the posture is, the posture is one of, of arrogant, arrogant pride, totally opposite of humility, totally opposite of like, 
posturing oneself to try to understand the truth and try to grapple with it. This was, this was if we say this, people are going to kill us. If we say this, it's going to make us look bad. And so rather than answer by conviction, they answer by their fear of man, which is what truly rules them, along with their love for rule and power position. And so, out of the weak, cowardly heart of unbelief and rejection that they have, they answer indecisively. They're like a guilty defendant in a court case that claims, I don't remember. I don't recall. Many a follower of Christ through church history has faced a question that forces them to either recant their faith or face the consequences of death. And when you read church history, there's, there's both both answers but we see so many people who chose death due to the conviction of truth they had they had been changed by king jesus and it didn't matter to them if they lost their life they did not consider their life above that which was true life in christ these religious leaders were so blind and so wrapped up in the praise of men and love for themselves their only conviction was their own importance so the only consequence for them in the moment in their indecisiveness was jesus's response if you're not going to say an answer, I'm not going to say an answer. I'm not even going to play the game. See, Jesus does not have to defend his authority to them or to you. He's shown it. He's revealed it. He's proved it repeatedly time and time and time again for three years in their lives, 2,000 years for us. Jesus does not answer them directly here, nor will he answer them at his trial in chapter 22. David Garland, the commentator I I love, says this, those who approach Jesus with hostility never receive direct answers or incontrovertible proofs. Just prove to me you are who you say you are, and I'll believe. Jesus says, done that. You've rejected me wholesale. The most amazing thing that has been done on this side of history is Jesus, King of Kings, dying and rising again. Reject that is the response of this world. The trajectory of rejection. Jesus says nothing here because he's already said everything needed through his life and ministry. You know, if you ever needed to say anything as God, the fact that he's spoken at all Revealed himself at all is all grace. He doesn't have to do anything. The fact that we're even here talking about this is just all grace. He's revealed himself. The God of creation has revealed himself to us. See, there's so much grace there. But he reveals himself to us, and the heart of man is like, don't believe it. What authority do you have over me, mister? All authority in fact. See, there's a lie that's proposed in man's heart, and perhaps it's in your heart this morning. Most definitely, there's a lie that's perpetuated throughout the world history and throughout the world today that we live in. Take any teaching in God's Word, any teaching, any teaching, and consider that when you passively read it and let it go in one ear and out the other, that you may very well be, however inadvertently, asking a similar question as the scribes. By what authority do you say these things? You read Jesus 
say, no man comes to the Father but through me, and you respond with indifference. One might read Jesus say something like this out of Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And your response, yeah, okay, whatever. Maybe you don't say that, but in one ear and out the other, kind of saying that. You feel that you're not really rejecting Jesus. You're not just sure that it's that big of a deal. But friend, that indifference is, is simply not just indifference. Because indifference to Jesus is rejection of Jesus. Let, let, that, let that land on you and think about that statement this week. Indifference to Jesus is at the core rejection of Jesus. Indifference to his words, indifference to his teaching, indifference to his person is at the root, a questioning of his authority. I don't believe it. I don't think it matters that much. Jesus says it matters eternally, and we're like, I don't think so. It sits at the root of unbelief and rejection. It may be a process, it's a trajectory of rejection is the point I'm making, and it reeks of a hostile heart towards God. And, and we must not be okay with a little hint of it in our lives, much less a lot of it. Now, again, please know that I am not speaking to the one who is honestly struggling to believe the promises of God with a posture of humility under his word this morning, with a, a heart that is being wrenched by sorrow and a mind that's having a hard time understanding the answers to all the questions that you have amid your suffering and amid your sorrow and amid your depression and all that. But I am speaking to the one who, rather than trusting Jesus and humbly trying to grasp and believe the promises of God, is actually increasingly questioning his authority choosing to not believe the promises and to not just question them, but, but get, kind of get to the place where I don't believe it. You may really, really like Jesus. You believe he is who he says he is, kind of, mostly, you know, most likely, but you question what he says, how narrow his way is, the threat of a coming judgment. And, and when it comes right down to it, you really aren't in too much love with this word, this book. You, you could take it or leave it, and you usually leave it. And you leave it because at the foundation of your processing in life, and your thinking, you question its value, its authority over you. It says this word is your very life. It says this word will revive your soul and restore and give understanding and all that, and, and, and the wonderful laws and the way God has revealed himself to us, and you're like, yeah. And in questioning the value of his word, which he's spoken in these days through his son, you open yourself up to really questioning the authority and person of Jesus. It's not just the word. You don't just begin to have doubts. You begin putting the king of kings on the stand in the courtroom of your own kingdom. You don't just wonder if the promises are true. You're increasingly believing his promises are meaningless don't apply to you, they're even outright lies. You hear the same question that the serpent gave Eve in the third chapter of Genesis. Did God really say that? Th this is mankind's persistent problem. Did God say, you must not make any other gods before me? Not that big of a deal. 
You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, okay, I'll, tr I'll try. Or maybe not. It's just not that important. It, you see the issue? At the core is a rejection of the God of this word. Listen, early on in the trajectory of rejection, we will always find the questioning of the authority of Jesus. 100% of the time. The authority of his word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. It's not going to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. I just want to read this. The author of Hebrews says this. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he is as he is has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This, this Jesus is uniquely connected to this word. He is the word, John chapter 1. He is the word. So, so to question his word, to, to question the authority of the word is to question an authority of Jesus. That's the connection we need to see. Second observation builds off of the first. So we've considered for a moment, questioning Jesus' authority reveals the trajectory of rejection. Secondly, taking personal offense at Jesus reveals a trajectory of rejection. Taking personal offense at Jesus reveals a trajectory of rejection. While, while Jesus doesn't outright answer these guys, he, he does immediately speak a parable to them and in so doing answers the question. He turns away from the leaders after saying, I'm not going to answer your question. He turns away from them, and he looks at everyone else. Maybe he's got his eyes on them as well. You know, I don't know. And he starts to tell this story. Now, here's the story in a nutshell. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to some tenants. A vineyard that we will see is clearly understood by the hearers as the nation, the people of Israel, his God's vineyard. And the religious leaders are primarily the ones who are called to tend to the vineyard and produce good fruit. And the servants who are sent to obtain the fruit from the tenants are the prophets from God, sent repeatedly throughout hundreds and hundreds of years to his people to correct and exhort and admonish them to produce fruit that comes from repentance. But the people... Every single, not every single one, most of them don't believe it. And they end up treating them ruthlessly. And to all who are listening, the clear connections with Israel's history is apparent. There's no need for any sort of gymnastics of understanding. So, so what does the owner of the vineyard do? This God that they know is speaking about God, what does he do? Well, he sends his son. He's already sent all these other guys, and he's, now he's sending his son, his beloved son. He, he is the heir of the vineyard. And perhaps the tenants will listen to him, but they don't. The, the son, they don't even listen to the son. How, how can they not? They know him to be the heir. They know him to be the son, but they don't listen to him. They, they wrongly figure that if they get rid of him, they'll receive the inheritance, so they take him out of the vineyard and they kill him. 
And of course, what we will see in precisely under a week's time, the Jewish people and the leaders are going to do to Jesus just what they did here. They're going to they're take him outside the city and hang him on a tree, a cross, and kill him. And they do so because they think that if they get rid of him, they're going to keep the inheritance, but they're sorely mistaken, as Jesus makes clear in the next portion of the story when he asks this question. He says, what does the owner of the vineyard, that is God, do? A judgment was going to come on them, clearly. Pastor Kale talked about it a little bit last week, and we'll talk about it again in a week or two. Destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Brutal destruction. In the vineyard, this vineyard of God would be given to others, the, the nations. So that's the story. And the people's response, well, it's either one of confusion regarding the way the tenants acted or one of denial of the necessity of such strong judgment against them. Whatever their specific confusion, Jesus looks them straight in the eyes. And see, you know how unnerving it is, right? When, someone, when you're talking to somebody, we tend to kind of like look around when we're talking to each other, but when someone's looking you straight in the eye, like if you're a kid here, and your parent looks you straight in the eye and says, listen to me, do, do you not, Hudson, do you not just kind of go, like, like you're focused, you're listening. Jesus looks him straight in the eyes with significant sincerity and absolute authority and sobriety. And he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The beloved son, the heir of the parable, the stone that the builders, the tenants rejected, they rejected him and his authority as king and the cornerstone of the house of God. This is what Jesus has already stated in, in Luke chapter 9 and in other places where he says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But this stone, this son, this heir, this Jesus, while he has been rejected, he's become the cornerstone nonetheless. Rejected by the builders, but the cornerstone of the new building to be built. The, the, the people to whom the vineyard owner gives the vineyard to, a new temple that makes the old one obsolete, a new temple in place of the one that's destined for destruction in just a few short years. And anyone who rejects this stone, trips over the stone, has the stone fall on them, they'll be broken to pieces and crushed, destroyed, is what Jesus says in verse 18. Paul would say something similar but in a different way to the corinthian church when he writes this in first corinthians 1 he says for jews demand signs and greeks seek wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the heir the son the messiah the stone the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So a question, are you stumbling this morning over Jesus' authority? Are you striving to somehow establish your own 
blamelessness, your own sinlessness, your own righteousness? Are you striving to simply be the master of your own house? Listen, Jesus is the cornerstone, not you. Not your obedience. He is the source of life. He is the source of hope. He is the fountain of living water. He's the beginning and the end of our righteousness and of of, of all of our existence. He is the only one through whom we're saved. And when you reject him, you reject hope. And this is precisely what we see happen in our text in verse 19. The scribes and Pharisees, their scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he told his parable against them, but they feared the people. There we go again with fearing the people. Couldn't do anything about it, but they were ticked off. The leaders knew he was talking, but they didn't have to read a commentator. They knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about them. And it made them mad, angry enough to want to kill him. And, and listen, Israel's history of rejection throughout history is clear. They knew it as well. Prophet after prophet was not listened to, but instead mistreated and discarded. Then even the son is sent, and even he is being rejected and will be killed, even in that moment, even though they, they're so blind they can't even see what they're doing themselves. But they're accountable for it. The son rejected and killed. He makes a clear connection with the Jewish people. Leaders primarily prophesied judgment, and the people took offense again just like they had throughout all of history. Because there's nothing new under the sun. And history tends to repeat itself. I mean, they were God's people. Who do you think you are, Jesus? We're not like those tenants. We don't deserve judgment. No one is taking the inheritance from us, buddy. Who do you think you are? We hate you. We hate you, and you know what? We're going to kill you. And they do to their eternal shame. Now rejection is what rejection of Jesus looks like yet today. The trajectory of rejection seems to be questioning the authority of Jesus and then taking offense at him as well. Rejecting the cornerstone means no building, no future, no hope. And according to verse 18, rejection means destruction. Rejection of Jesus' authority is to take offense at him and his words and will ultimately result in one's demise both spiritually, emotionally, and physically and eternally, the trajectory of rejection is destruction. David Garland says, the parable paints a vivid picture of human willful rebellion against God. The the tenants have rejected the reality that they are creatures of God who simply live in God's vineyard. They want to be the lords of the vineyard. God stands in the way of their plans, and so they brutalize or kill any of God's messengers who remind them of the reality. They recognize the heir, but rejected him because they were unwilling to relinquish control over their vineyard to its rightful owner. Now, perhaps you're offended at Jesus on account of the circumstances you face in life. Do you feel that God stands in the way of your plans? Are you looking to be the master of your own life, the Lord of your own vineyard? Are you offended by the narrow message of the gospel, offended by the authority of Jesus and what he calls you to? Offended by Jesus' teaching on hell, for instance. I mean, people don't deserve that kind of punishment, that kind of judgment. People will just cry out incredulously. Because we're our own people. 
We don't exist for God. We exist for ourselves and for one another. He can't tell us what to do. Who do you think you are, Jesus? I am my own inheritance. Thank you very much. I trust in myself. I trust in my own feelings. I trust in my own thoughts, my own ability to do anything I want to do. And it may even get to the point, because this is a trajectory of rejection, gets to the point where you say, I hate you. And I would kill you if I could. And I reject you. In fact, don't be deceived. It will get to that point. It is the trajectory of rejection to those who are left to themselves. Listen, the good news of Jesus is shared with many across the world today. Some people have their eyes opened and are struck down by the weight of the penalty of their sin before holy God, but they hear the good news of Jesus, they place their faith in Jesus, receiving forgiveness of sins, acceptance with God, given the right to become a child of God, John 1, 12, given the Holy Spirit and the guarantee of eternal life in the presence of the one for whom we exist and joy in his presence among a myriad of other promises. There's, there's, there's many of you here this morning, by God's grace, there are some here this morning, though, who are part of the most others who reject the message of Jesus and the Jesus of the message entirely and face destruction unless you turn from that path. Again, there are only two options. And listen, Jesus stands in the middle of your crumbling path of rejection and compels you to trust him, to turn to him, to believe in him. In the days Jesus was walking on this planet, he went walking about with clarity who he is and proving it repeatedly right in front of crowds of people. One would think upon seeing what Jesus was doing, a person might tend to put their faith in him. Uh, but, but not so. Even upon hearing Jesus with their own ears, seeing, them, seeing him with their own eyes, most rejected his message. And most rejected him. And, and the same is true today. When we're brought face to face with the eyewitness accounts that we've read and considered in this Gospel of Luke, this orderly account of what Jesus did and said, we only have two places to land. One way is to land on the way of rejection, the trajectory of rejection. And perhaps you're here and you truly do not believe anything about Jesus. To you, Jesus is a flake. Jesus might not even be real, but even if he is real, he's just a good man, good teacher, and on and on and on you go. But in thinking that, friend, you sit in utter rejection of him. This is no, this is no um, nominal rejection. This is no um, kind of Switzerland uh, kind of rejection. This is utter rejection. You question him and his authority and you've taken offense at him. And you live as though you're accountable to no one. So when Jesus speaks so clearly about the consequences for rejecting him, you think you're a fraud. You think he's a He's a liar. I don't need to listen to him. He's just a misinformed man in history. But here's what the very real man in historical history says. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
And I'm here this morning to plead with you, to proclaim to you and plead with you to turn from your self-sufficient heart of rejection and believe on the King of Kings, the one with all authority, the one with all power, the one who alone can save you from the penalty of your rejection of the one for whom you exist. Turn to him. Repent means turn from your rejection and look to him and say, please forgive me, have mercy on me. Perhaps you are one who feels indifferent to him. And you're indifferent to what you read. You, you believe it, kind of. But your indifference to his revelation of himself betrays an underlying reality in your questioning of his authority. And when push comes to shove, you may have become, or you will become at some point, offended by what he said about himself and what he requires of you. And I'm here this morning to plead with you to stop playing around. Your, your indifference is just not okay. I indifference to Jesus and to his word betrays a deceptive rejection of him. And the trajectory of rejection leads to destruction. The author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Do you, do you hear the trajectory of rejection in that and the warning? Be careful, brothers and sisters. Turn away from your self-sufficient, cold heart towards God and believe on Christ. Commit your ways to him. Ask him for mercy and forgiveness and trust in him. There's, there's nothing more foolish than looking at the only one who saves and turning away in rejection, either outright rejection or indifference. He's King Jesus, the, the Lord of life. A rejection of Jesus results in being destroyed in the end, broken to pieces and crushed. But friends, Jesus stands in the middle of your crumbling path of rejection and compels you to trust him. Don't trip over him. Don't look away. Because Jesus this morning is looking into your eyes this very morning and calling you this morning, whether online or whether here in this room, to trust him, to believe him, to, to find life in him. Because you see, while the result of rejection is destruction, eternal destruction, the reward, the reward of belief is the inheritance of eternal life with the son, the heir, and actually becoming heirs of the kingdom yourself. Galatians 5. The good news, amid mankind's trajectory of rejection, Jesus is purposed to continue on a, another trajectory, the trajectory of the gospel where he seeks and he saves the lost and the ones who were once hostile, the ones who, who wanted to just reject the cornerstone. He seeks you and he, he wants to save you and the question is, will you come to him? Because as Hebrews says, as you come to him, 
A living stone, or First Peter, Peter says this, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him... Oh, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, they stumble because they disobey the word and as they were destined to do. But you, you, you believe you who trust in the cornerstone. Oh, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, now you're who? God's people. You're God's people once you had not received mercy, but now, oh, we've received mercy. Listen, Jesus stands in the middle of your crumbling path of rejection, and he compels you to trust him. Get off of that road. Trust in me. The only way off of that road is to trust him, and he will put you on that road that leads to eternal life, to receive mercy from him, to receive his inheritance, to become part of God's family, part of God's house where Jesus is the precious and chosen cornerstone. So die to this world, friends. Die to yourselves, friends, and turn from your quiet rejection of him. Turn from your loud rejection of him. Confess your rejection to him. Ask him to forgive you and confess him as the Lord and master of your life, and you will be given life eternal. Brothers and sisters, we have an enemy who is after us. He's wanting to steal, kill, and destroy us and our faith. And he does so, so often through circumstantial difficulties that cause us to question Jesus, to question his authority, to start building up this offense against Jesus. And in the end, that path is a path of rejection. May we not fall for his lies. How do we resist? The author of Hebrews states this. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And listen, what is it we've heard? Is it not this? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Listen, Jesus does not only stand in the middle of one's crumbling path of rejection and compel them to trust in him. He walks alongside you and I who humbly follow him, strengthening him with the word of his power, keeping us, sustaining us amid our doubts, amid our sorrows, amid our questions, amid our tears, and he bids us, trust me. Trust me, I'm for you. Believe on me. Rest in me. Know, know that he alone friends, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.